Hello, and welcome to Unabridged, the weekly podcast where teachers take on books. This is Sarah. Join us for bookish episodes and a monthly book club pick. This is Ashley. Find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Unabridged Pod, or go to our website, unabridgedpod.com, where the books we read are linked for purchase. This is Jen. Check out our Teachers Pay Teachers store, our Patreon page, and our newsletter. Please rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts to support us. You want opinions about books? We've got them. Hey, this is Jen. So we are here with one of our book club episodes. This is about Maggie O'Farrell's I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death. Before we get started, we just want to remind you, if you can find us on the Apple Podcast app and subscribe, rate, and review, we would really appreciate it. So Maggie O'Farrell's I Am, I Am, I Am, 17 Brushes with Death is a memoir that describes exactly what the subtitle says. It describes in loosely connected chapters 17 times that O'Farrell almost died. As she weaves the stories together, O'Farrell begins to pick out threads that run through her life, reflecting upon the meaning of each brush with death and what survival meant in that case. All right, so let's start first with what you all thought. Uh, Sarah, what did you think of this book? I think I might <laughs> differ in my opinions a little bit from both Ashley and Jen, just from what they've said. I, I did like this book. I think it is beautifully written. I'm, it, it, there's no doubt that Maggie O'Farrell is a talented writer. I mean, she has a very, she has a way with words and she is able to create um, these really, this really great imagery in the book. However, for me, it was, I, I kind of struggled to get through it. There were some of the, the stories that I, or the essays that I really thought went fast, but then some of it I was kind of plodding through. And I also, it just wasn't something that I was dying to come back to. So that made it a little bit of a hard read for me um, versus some of the other books we've read. <laughs> Oopsie. That we've read lately that I just had you know, I just wanted to continue reading. And mm-hmm. I think that is, for me as a reader, that's what I always find in anything that's told in a, like a vignette style or uh, an essay style. Even if it has a, com- a common thread in it, it's always really hard for me to go back to those. So mm-hmm. short stories, I struggle with short, contemporary short story collections. So I think, I think for me, I can recognize it as a great piece mm-hmm. of writing I think she's talented. I think that her stories were poignant, but for me as a reader, it wouldn't be something that I chose on my own. Mm-hmm. So makes sense. All right, Ashley, what do you think? <laughs> um, well, I was laughing because I was like, "Oh, Sarah's missing an earring," and then finally I realized that that's was what the fell. Thing that fell. <laughs> oh, yeah, and I quite patient. So, so I was a little slow on the uptake there, but anyway, like Sarah, I don't enjoy things that are loosely connected a lot of times and I was concerned when I first started it first of all one of you posted I think you posted maybe Sarah about it being nonfiction, and I was like oh no (laughs) (laughs) Um, but I loved it I mean I thoroughly enjoyed it and I felt like in some ways it actually was more effective for me pacing wise because I could get myself to get through the story mm-hmm. as opposed to feeling like you're just getting through a chapter. So I think in some ways, like each time I started a story, I wanted to finish that vignette before I put it down. And that mm-hmm. actually helped me, I think, get through it a little bit faster. The two at the end were quite a bit longer. Yes. And I paid for that a little bit over the weekend. <laughs> but, but, you know, I think that that, helped the momentum had led up to that also and so I think in some ways I was ready to embrace those stories that were more in depth more fully because I had read all the things leading up I mean in some ways it is painful I mean you know because of the premise of the Mm -hmm. collection that you're sort of waiting for the bad thing to happen in each of the stories and sometimes it's really apparent up front and then other times you're waiting for the bad thing to come and so there is this sort of visceral feeling that listeners know I don't necessarily love (laughs) um because I want things to be happy and easy but you know but I felt like her commentary on life was just really powerful and Mm -hmm. I a lot of the things that she said really resonated with me I really loved what she shared about miscarriage I really loved what she shared about travel I felt like there were parts where I was like 
this is exactly my life experience. Like this is exactly the feeling that I have about this thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really remarkable for an author to be able to capture a moment and tell a story in a way that the reader can really see themselves in that instance. Mm -hmm. I felt that way about some of the things she said about being a parent and about being a child. Um, And so, you know, I just, I felt like all of that I really loved. And I also have been reading a lot of, mood reading, YA, that kind of thing, which I thought would help me. Yeah, sometimes I think that a break is actually good. Like, Mm -hmm. I was concerned that it was going to be harder work, and it is definitely slower reading than the things I've read, but apparently I kind of needed a break from Mm -hmm. the kinds of books I've read the last couple of weeks. So Mm -hmm. it was good for me. I really enjoyed it. What about you, Jen? So this was my second time through. So this was actually our reader's choice pick. Yeah. Yes. And I was sort of surprised. I had predicted that other books would have won. So I think I was the person who put this on the list because I had read it and loved it. But I really didn't think it would be the one that our readers chose. But I was I was glad that it was. And then I told Ashley today as I was reading through it, I was like, oh, no, this is like it's really sad. And so then I thought, why did I? Why did I nominate that? Why did I put that on our list? Because sometimes those are just hard to get through. And I think for me, because it is so powerfully written, those sad moments hit harder. Mm -hmm. Whereas something, I just feel like her writing is so evocative. And I just feel so much with every moment. And she is quite different from me. But I do think there are there are similarities in some of the parts when she's thinking about, like you said, what it means to be a daughter and who you are as a child and then that how how that relates to who you are as an adult that I think are interesting and I thought and we'll get into this more but she has this desire not to draw attention to her awareness that a situation is dangerous or uncomfortable and it made me think a lot about being a woman and I definitely do that and so there were just these moments that she came back to over and over. I thought the threads that were woven throughout, while not prominent, it's definitely that you can definitely read these things independently. I found that those threads I kept coming back to really just resonated with me. Mm -hmm. So I I love it. And the second time through, you know, anytime you're going through a book for the second time, I think you pay attention to things more on the word and sentence level and are, are picking up those connections more. And so I definitely felt like I read it more deeply this time, if that makes sense. Yeah. So, but, all right, well, let's go ahead. Oh, Ashley. Oh, I thought you, I thought you gasped in preparation to say something. <laughs> Sorry. I did not. Okay. Not this time. <laughs> Maybe later. So if it's okay, there are a couple of stories that, that I remembered from my first reading. There were some I had kind of forgotten. One of the ones that I really remembered is the first story in the book. And it is the one where Maggie O'Farrell is hiking. She's a, a teenager and she is working a summer job and she is hiking. And a man who later kills another girl tries to kill her. What did you all think of that as a way to launch the collection as a way to introduce sort of what the book is about? What were your reactions to that story? I mean, I really liked the way that it unfolded and how, I mean, I think that there, again, I mean, I said before that I think there's a sense of dread Mm -hmm. in a lot of the stories because you know a bad thing is coming, but I also felt like it shows how easily those situations can swing one way or Mm -hmm. another Mm -hmm. and how and I think in some ways I mean it is awful what went on to happen but I think it does show the power that you have in a moment to make a decision that can make a difference Mm -hmm. and I thought that her insight into you know don't highlight to the person that they are doing a bad thing Mm -hmm. don't show that you know that they're evil I mean all that of course doesn't mean that it's going to play out one way versus another way but for her in that moment it was successful and so I felt like that was just really fascinating to read and then I just so deeply emotionally felt the connection of her going and trying to report it and how dismissive and absurd Mm -hmm. the people acted like her story was to suggest that she from this binocular strap could ascertain these ill ill 
um, you know, the, the ill intentions of this person mm-hmm. when, of course, she was precisely right. And that was precisely what he was doing. And there could have been something about him that was caught. That was he maybe he was somewhat mentally unstable. Right. But if they had taken her seriously and heard her as a person who was of worth and who knew what was happening, then the outcome for mm-hmm. the other person could have been so different. And so I just felt like it I, I thought it was really effective in that sense of launching the launching the whole book mm-hmm. because it showed her choices, the choices that she made, the impact they did or didn't have, and, and how she felt about those and as she carried on and moved forward. And I thought it was also interesting how she internalized that event and didn't mm-hmm. tell people and then where she came back to it later on and talked about sharing it with Will and that being the first time that she had ever told anyone. Mm-hmm. And so I just think that part was really interesting too, the things that we carry inside but don't share with people Mm -hmm. yeah I think it was a good start for the for the collection for me because it it was one of those things that highlighted how near how near death we can be at Mm -hmm. any given moment Mm -hmm. in our in our walk in Mm -hmm. in this life and I you know I was telling a friend about the book today and he said, well, I wonder how many times I, I've had a brush with death. Right. And mm-hmm. I mean, you think about it. I and mean, just the one that where she was talking about her head being close to the lorry that was driving down the road. I mean, I think about, you know, when you, you put your arm outside of a window as you're driving in the nice air. But like there's all these things that you could um, that could happen. There's all these different paths that yeah. the, your decisions can make. And I think that was a really good start to kind of set up for the rest of the stories that came later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. the So for her, I definitely have had those moments, but the ones that haunt me, and I think you see this in her book as well, are the ones where something almost happened to one of my kids. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. yeah. I, and those are the ones that sometimes I wake up at night and just, you know, some of them happen when like my oldest was really little. He's 12 now. And there was something that happened when he was two that I still sometimes wake up just heart beating so fast all over again because I think yeah once you have kids it's like all those fears divert to your children so all right so another thing that I found very striking Ashley and you you mentioned this is that unwillingness to acknowledge danger and I wrote down a bunch of page numbers where that happens and then she also talks about when she was a child how she wanted to be known as good-natured and I, I just saw this connection. She talks about herself as being raised or be, going to school in this atmosphere of violence. And then in her home, she is this escape artist who is always running away. And I just thought all of that sort of connected for me in a really interesting way and made me think, like for her, it worked out well. But what is it in us that we don't want to acknowledge when we're in danger, when we really, really are? And do you think that it all? always works out that that is the right decision or is it sometimes better to draw someone's attention to their behavior Hmm. it's a big old hypothetical (laughs) (laughs) for one thing I don't think that all people are that way Mm -hmm. so I feel like some people are paralyzed Mm -hmm. by the thought that there's danger everywhere Mm -hmm. and so in some ways that is unique to her experience Mm -hmm. not that you're saying it's not Jen I'm just thinking like so I feel like that's interesting about her personality. Mm -hmm. And I wonder how much of that had to do with her illness as a child Mm -hmm. and the impact on her and the determination she had to have to get through that Mm -hmm. and all that, like how much did that shape her determination and, and the fact that her single mindedness she feels can override anything Uh, else Mm -hmm. because it's as if she is willing to take any risk Mm -hmm. because she feels sure that, she can determine its outcome, right? basically. But I do think also, I mean, like you said, Sarah, the reference of the head against the lorry, mm-hmm. that kind of thing, any that could happen to anyone Anybody. at any mm-hmm. time. So there's the ones like the wall where she mm-hmm. chose to jump. Mm-hmm. That, for sure, is personality-driven to a certain extent. So like, there's people that would take that risk and people who would not. Mm-hmm. And it seems to me that that's not going to change. But then there are other things that she has remarked upon and, and held on to and remembered that could, that are, you know, just the, just the moment, mm-hmm. just, just the thing. And so I think it's kind of interesting to think about them in two different 
you know, two mm-hmm. different ways. Yeah. I found a lot of the story. I found her both unrelatable and relatable because mm-hmm. for mm-hmm. me, the I'm someone that stresses out about the potential danger and everything. Mm-hmm. So like I cannot, I can't really relate to her in how she was unwilling to acknowledge the near and present danger mm-hmm. for herself and but but as a mother and the things that she did for I, I felt like I, I came to feel more connected mm-hmm. to her stories when she talked more about being a mother and uh, in those types of situations yeah. and the like that la- I was uh, it was funny because Ashley said the last chapter was the longest and that is the one that I like the best which mm-hmm. I think also speaks to the fact that it's really difficult for me to connect in in enough time like in an essay because yeah. there's not enough time for me uh, to feel right. comfortable with with the not she's not a character but with the person who's telling me mm-hmm. the story I need more time to develop that and I thought that last I mean I thought that was beautiful that was my favorite story that she told was the one about her daughter mm-hmm. well and, and I found it the most powerful yes, yes I do think I know why she ended with it I found I it the most powerful for sure yes but it was so painful it was so painful and I, but I don't think I didn't feel like it was long in the sense of like was, dragging yeah I yeah, didn't yeah. Think it was dragging neither that nor her illness yes. Yes. one it was just that you know they were it was Sunday ones. night I <laughs> was like oh yes <laughs> I should have I was like I only have two left oh but I should have <laughs> no but I agree that that part resonated the most I think mm-hmm. And I think, too, like the chapter or, yeah, the story about, I keep saying story, the essay about Mm -hmm. her encephalitis, I felt that it, I felt she alluded to the fact that that childhood illness dictated the way Mm -hmm. that she handled dangerous situations, Mm -hmm. Uh, especially that, that whole conversation between the nurse and the child outside her door Mm -hmm. when they, when she was basically saying that that Maggie was going to die mm-hmm. to this child and she is hearing this whole thing. I think that all of that, when she included all that, I felt like that spoke to the fact mm-hmm. that that colored kind of yeah. her decision-making process the rest of her life. She called it the hinge of her childhood, yeah. which I thought was such a brilliant way to say yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I thought, I thought I agree with all of that. I thought it was also interesting that a lot of times she knew she was in danger, but the person who was putting her in danger she did not let them know that she knew Mm. it was like if she admitted it if she even showed them that she recognized how dangerous the situation was she felt like that would set off something in them that if she continued to hide it and to pretend like nothing was wrong that they would almost believe the the falsehood that she was spinning Mm -hmm. and I thought that was really interesting as well Yeah. yeah so she has a lot of interactions with people in medicine mm-hmm. in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, some oh have gosh. to do with her first, her first child and his and labor and delivery and all that. And then with her daughter at the end, she has a couple. What what was your reaction to those? I mean, it's horrifying. Yeah, uh, the part with the son where she knew had documentation saying that she would not be able to deliver naturally, that she would need a C-section. And, I mean, of course, it's interesting for us as Americans because that is a huge issue in our country, but often in the other, swinging the other way, that people are doing it more, you know, you have to be, You, I think in our country there's a lot of discussion about it, but often it is that, women feel that if their body isn't doing exactly the thing that people think it should be doing at exactly the time they think Mm -hmm. it should be doing it, that they're moving in that direction. But clearly in her situation where the labor had gone on and on and on, and then they wound up in the situation where she near about died, Mm -hmm. as did the child. I mean, they they made that choice. That man made that choice. Mm -hmm. And I just felt like she knew that and she conveyed that to us in a way that i mean i was enraged mm-hmm, because yeah. i think she she shows that so clearly she's said uh, you know the hospital's like we're, you're never going to see him again and of course it is that right person <laughs> good filter <laughs> I see, both of them were like where is she gonna go with that one um that person who i want to say other things about that i think was making this horrendous choice that almost cost the life of both of them oh my gosh and so, wait, yeah, so i was, was horrified when he totally dismissed her at the beginning right. but then when he came in because they were in such dire i mean they were in danger at that yes. point and he still said it would be the mother's Election. choice yes. that that was going to be in yeah. the chart Ugh. Just the power that he felt 
to make these decisions about her life and Oh, it was and the sad. desire to prove that he was right. right. I mean, it was his unwillingness, even in the face of her bleeding out on mm-hmm. the floor, that he still felt that he had to prove that he was right, mm-hmm. which, again, is consistent with the way she portrayed him as a person. So I think you could see that coming. But, man, come on. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought that was horrifying. And then all this stuff with her daughter as well. Mm-hmm. That I think that one is less clear it just mm-hmm. showed because i think there are a lot of times that people just didn't know what to do right. so it wasn't always purposeful being cruel for the mm-hmm. sake of thinking that you know better than someone else and just dismissing them as a person right but there's a lot there too the one that well, got me there was when she went in and the doctor had the prescription written and as they didn't she, even yes. look at the daughter yeah yes. to know that that was a medicine that they had just tried Oof. yeah that and again i don't think that was that wasn't cruelty for the sake of being cruel but it is just it's that power. arrogance it's the arrogance and it's yeah. dismissal power. is mm-hmm. dismissal of the fact that there's enough of a problem to mm-hmm. care yeah when clearly that her daughter is suffering mm-hmm. and then when they finally got the doctor who was so good but then you realize the full extent of the daughter's condition mm. that yeah that whole thing was horrifying i should say my mother is a nurse and i have a great deal of respect for most people in the medical community but her experiences <laughs> i just yeah. ended the book thinking she did not have any good experiences with the mm-hmm. medical community. When she had the encephalitis and they were so resistant to explaining things to her, the whole CAT scan part when they strapped her oh down. Oh, my goodness. That was so awful. I just over and over. And where, where was her mom the first time? I mean, I, I felt this pain that the family clearly did not know the way it was going to be done mm-hmm. or they would have been there with her just like her mom was there with her the second time so then you wonder what was communicated to them that they wouldn't have been there with their with that young of a child right yeah so i just yeah. ended the book just having these horribly bitter feelings toward everyone in her life and she had so many medical conditions so to see her have to go through that over and over yeah. was horrifying yeah man oh <sighs> Okay, so another, a, a more positive thread that I saw going through the book were the number of just strangers who just, she calls them saviors at mm-hmm. one point, who just help her. She never sees them again. They never ask for recognition. One of them is just the man who, when she has had her son and thinks she's dying mm-hmm. and they're trying to put her back together, just comes and holds her hand. And I just thought there were so many moments it, it didn't make the situations better, but it just made me hopeful mm-hmm. and, and have good feelings about humanity yeah. that while there are really horrible people, there are also these people who aren't asking for any credit who really change things for her. Mm-hmm. Did you all have any favorites among those, those saviors? I would have to say mine is the gentleman who was paralyzed in the motorbike accident that reached out to her when she was doing her physical Mm -hmm. therapy and just that whole group of people who were her champions and cheered her on on and just gave her this hope that she wouldn't have otherwise had and I love that she acknowledges all those people along the way who are are by large part nameless strangers Mm -hmm but who have had this impact on her life and her well-being. So he was probably my favorite, but I thought all of them were really remarkable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I thought that, I mean, I, I really appreciated the fact that she could see that in yeah. all of those instances because I think I'm not always great about that. So just considering that in the face of these things, there are these remarkable people who do these things for her. But um, the one, one of the ones that stood out was about the lactation consultant who helped her when her son was feeding so poorly. Um, And I just love that whole part because I feel like that is so much motherhood and having a baby and not knowing what to do. And it just feels like everyone around you knows what to do and only you don't know. And I think that that is such a part of breastfeeding and Mm -hmm. that in society now is just really different than it was when people were lived in a larger ancestral family connection and there were older women helping younger women day in and day out figure out how to do that. And so I think that there's just a lot of misconceptions about it anyway. So I feel like she describes in detail how horrendous that cycle is. And as you're reading it, I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, how did she go through that? But you do. Mm -hmm. You do, especially Mm -hmm. in those early times with 
young children, it's unbelievable what people will bear because you don't know what else to do and you don't have any time to fix it. Because at the second you turn around, the baby needs to eat again and three hours have gone by or 30 minutes has gone by and like here you are again and all you know to do is to keep going. And so she talks about that. She says on page 190, something is wrong. I know. Maybe it's me. Maybe my milk is no good, too much or not enough. Maybe I'm not doing this right. Maybe I'm just rubbish at it. But I'm so wary of doctors, which I think speaks to what we were just talking about, of forms of hospitals so rehearsed in the way they can suck you in, chew you up, and not spit you out for a long time that I can see that when I can see the health visitor, I pull my face into a smile and say, everything's fine. Yes, all good. No, I don't cry more than usual. Yes, he's wonderful. Yes, he sleeps. Yes, I'm absolutely fine. And it goes on, and then that's where... She is in this situation where the um, kind of nameless savior woman walks over and says, I'm a breastfeeding counselor. Does he always feed like this? And she tells her about the silent reflux and Mm -hmm. that she, you know, that she, he's going to be fine. But she says, you know, the question is, what are we going to do about mommy? And I just think like that was really powerful too, Mm -hmm. because so rarely, again, going back to what we talked about with the medical profession, which unfortunately she did have a lot of experiences Mm -hmm. with them and they were really generally negative in this moment the 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 lactation consultant sees her for herself and cares about her and what's going on with her. And I think all that's really powerful. So All right. So another thing that I thought was really powerful through the book, and she talks about this explicitly at one point, Ashley, you referenced this at the beginning, is her desire to have a, well, she has a sense of adventure from the time she's very small, but then that shapes her desire to travel and her decisions to travel and to have her children be travelers. Uh And I thought that was really this thing that she took a part of herself, but then made it this deliberate decision that this is the sort of life she wanted to live and she wanted her kids to live. Any any commentary about that? I mean, I think that's, I think with, I think it's really brave because I mean, with, I feel like with her daughter's medical issues that it would be very easy just to stay home mm-hmm. because that you know it i mean it's just like that last story when they are lost in italy was it italy mm, yeah. i think and trying to find a hospital so and horrifying. she's an anaphylactic chuck and i mean it is just so i mean i admire the bravery to still be committed to letting your chil- children experience that no matter what and i mean her meticulous cataloging of the things that could mm-hmm. potentially harm mm-hmm. her daughter and making sure things are clear and to go and just being an advocate for her I think that's that's great and I think it's I think it's admire, admirable that she she continued with that plan mm-hmm. even though her daughter has significant medical issues and allergies mm-hmm. yeah I mean that all that really resonated. I was going to say, I thought about Ashley. Yeah, I mean, I think that really resonated with me. I It's certainly something that, I mean, just what she, she this is on 202, where she talks about the restlessness that she'd felt all her life, and she where there's a part where she's talking about how she'll rearrange all her furniture and um, compulsively uh-huh. go through things, and that her partner will come home and, and say, maybe we should plan a holiday. <laughs> I'm like, that's totally me. Um, so I think that I, yeah, I really identified with that because again, going back to what I said about risk taking, I think that that is, I have come to understand that not all people are that way, mm-hmm. but it is hard. <laughs> Everybody can look at me now. <laughs> but, but it is hard for me to understand because it's such a part of myself mm-hmm. and such a part of like my desire for the world and therefore a desire that I have for my children as mm-hmm. well. But also something that I, like she said, I mean, I think that she didn't do much traveling growing up and that's true for me too, where when i traveled I thought oh this is the thing this is the thing that gives me the sense of fulfillment that I often have I often experience restlessness instead mm-hmm. and so all of that made a lot of sense to me but I will say that when I read that chapter I did not know about her daughter's medical mm-hmm. yeah all, all of her medical concerns and so then when I read that I was like wow I mean that's like you said Sarah I mean it's a whole nother level mm-hmm. to to be able to take your children when when you know how difficult the situations could be but yeah I mean I think it's a choice that as families people do have to make and I think a lot of people 
Yeah, I think she does a good job of showing how it is difficult and mm-hmm. it is a choice that people have to make. And even though I think travel is often seen as a luxury, but it's also hard and mm-hmm. it's hard with families and it's hard with young kids. And it's because of the things that she talks about, because, you know, you can't the things you take for granted that you think is going are going to be so easy that you do automatically in your own life are very difficult in those mm-hmm. environments. And so, yeah, I just thought all that made. Yeah, that spoke to me. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So through the the book, and she tells it non-sequentially, so she it definitely I was trying to figure out the timeline of well, it. Which that was something that I think took me out of it mm-hmm. several times because she would, the, the, the essay she wrote about when she was kind of seeing the guy, seeing a guy kind of a clandestine yeah. affair or not affair and I was I was trying to figure out in the timeline if she was married to Will because Will had been spoken about or if it was something where she was because she said there were other hearts involved but I but I wanted to know if it was Will's heart or if it was just someone else and I didn't want to go back through all the mm-hmm. years but so that I wish it would have been told chronologically mm-hmm. and I kept trying to figure out the the decision that she made to make it non-chronological and I couldn't figure it out. And first I thought it was because each chapter begins with a body part. I was mm-hmm. like, oh, maybe she started at the head and worked her way down. <laughs> but that wasn't it. So <laughs> so I don't know. I, but I think that it would have, I would have been able to stay in it more if it was mm. chronological because I found that a bit disorienting as a reader to keep flashing flashing back and forward and back and forward mm-hmm. without like a really clear reason for yeah. that mm-hmm. which i'm sure she had a reason but i could not determine it i did feel like i relied on the years yes. a lot yeah. to try to figure that out yeah because there was a long time that she did not use names and then eventually you get will and anton uh-huh. and you're yeah like and she doesn't name her kids was which, right yeah yeah mm-hmm. so i thought that was interesting, interesting. Yeah, yeah but i was assuming that it was will and i really love their love story yes but now i realize that maybe their love story wasn't what i thought it was because maybe mean, i misidentified the lover person, yeah, the love interest at some points as well when it wasn't supposed to be well. All right, I'm gonna be fine. That turned into a non-question. <laughs> I think she left that one cryptic on purpose, yes. folks. That that was the consistent because Sarah, I started to go down that pathway, and then I was like, she clearly did not want to lay this out for me. Yes. So I don't need to waste yeah. a lot of my precious minutes to go back and look at the years mm-hmm. to try to figure it out. Yes. But I did wonder yes. also. All right, so I want to talk about two more things, and I think then we'll be ready to move on. So one is the part with the feather and her son after she has miscarried, and they are out on the beach, and they find a feather, and her son loves the word. He says, fever, 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 because it's his new word, which I think all of us who've had kids, you know, they get that obsession with the word. And then they go and he basically leads her to this really symbolic moment where they're letting the feather go in the sea. And she says, I hold the feather high above my head and my son raises his face to see. I let it drop, releasing it into the air. I think it might swirl and swoop down that he might like that, that he might pick it up again, pick it up and say again, again, but it doesn't. It rises higher and higher, born on what seems like nothing. We watch it together, up and up and up it sails directly over our heads, and then it vanishes. And I just thought that was so lovely. And there's a feather on the cover, so which I thought was an entree. But I just thought, like, the whole book is about death, but it's also about defiance of death. And so I think she chose that quotation from Sylvia Plath at the beginning that gives us, I am, I am, I am. And she ends it with her daughter, she is, she is, she is. And I just think that defiance of death on her own behalf. And then it's like she's willing her daughter to have the same thing. But she know, I mean, she's experienced the death of her children before. Mm-hmm. And so through miscarriages. And so I also think just that constant awareness of the danger that she's in and the danger her daughter is in it is really makes that hope and that will to survive even more powerful for me what did you all think about in the feather or the i am i am i am the title i mean i thought that particular essay was also really powerful powerful i really liked the i really thought that the way that she spoke to the way women feel that they can't speak about miscarriages Mm -hmm. and the way that she described the the her the 
children that she had lost as ghost mm-hmm. babies and mm-hmm. talking and making that analogy about the the feather kind of floating up and never coming down and it, I thought it was all very beautiful and gut-wrenching and I thought it, I mean that was another one of the ones that really I think a lot of, like I said before a lot of the ones that spoke to being a mother mm-hmm. are the ones that made me feel like I connected with her as a human being because because I'm a mother, and while I haven't experienced a miscarriage, I've experienced other things that relate to my children, and you just feel, you can feel that viscerally yeah. when another mother is speaking about hers. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> Ditto. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. Um, I, I mean, I felt like I said before about the miscarriage mm-hmm. that I really, that chapter really resonated with me, and... I like her like I'd had a child and then I had miscarriages twice but mine were very early on but still it's that feeling that of course no one knew because you don't tell anyone you don't tell anyone because no one is that whole thing and she says on 104 she says to this I say why why should we carry on as if it's nothing out of the ordinary it is not ordinary to conceive a life and then to lose it it's very far from ordinary these passings should be marked should be respected should be given their due it's a life however small however germinal. It's a collection of cells for you and, in most cases, for someone you love. Yes, of course, worse things happen every day. No one in their right mind would deny that. But to dismiss a miscarriage as nothing, as something you need to take on the chin and carry on, is to do a disservice to ourselves, to our living children, to those nascent beings that lived only within us, to the person we imagined throughout the short pregnancy, to those ghost children we still carry in our minds, the ones who didn't make it. And I just think I appreciated that whole essay because she, and I think that about a lot of the things in the book, I think that about her daughter's allergies and eczema and um, that she just talks outright about things that Mm -hmm. in our society we don't discuss. Mm -hmm. And so I appreciated that she's speaking to her own experience, but she's also giving commentary on the attitudes of society. And it is something that, I mean, the midwives told me like 50%. Mm-hmm. end in miscarriage I mean it's this unbelievable percentage but no one knows mm-hmm. because no one is aware that it's so high and happens so frequently because no one talks about it because mm-hmm. it goes back to this idea yes. that so many times it's happening prior to the announcement and so who knows how many people we walk by every day are experiencing right. those things and then carry this um, I mean I love what she says about take it on the chin and carry on yeah. because it is this idea that there's no space to feel a reaction to that which is absurd mm-hmm. yeah. I mean it really when you lay it out like that it, it really is absurd but yet it's such a cultural norm mm-hmm. that it is something we take for granted and I mean I felt like similarly with her daughter I loved what she said about people not wanting to be bothered with having to you know not only the cruel things that people say about her child and to her child but also um, the ways that people just don't want to be bothered with these extra steps and how when you see it from her side I mean on the one hand I can understand Mm -hmm. that perspective because I think you know you would be terrified to do the wrong thing to make a mistake and to cause a reaction but then when you look at it as where she's laying it out from that angle it's Mm -hmm. impossible not to understand how how hurtful it is and so I think that that is something she does throughout the book is just speaks to experience and the way that people's choices impact other people Mm -hmm, yeah Yeah. and I love that I will say in that part when she talks about the people who are willing to go Mm -hmm. take take the extra step I mean again more saviors yeah Yeah. (laughs) sorry I don't I don't have my rose colored glasses on with this book like I think it is really sad and I think there are a lot of really horrible people in it but then I think she made it through for a reason. And a lot of times that reason is someone who did one small thing for them. Like the woman who, when she has dysentery is like, she needs to go to the hospital. And then Mm -hmm. she did. Yeah. That was all she did. But her saying that made Anton take her to the hospital. And then. Well, I think that's another great example of where, I mean, she would have died. Yeah. But I think you get into these situations where you think it's not that bad. Mm -hmm. And so I think she does that really well too, of just showing that, you don't realize yeah. how how catastrophic the situation is off, often mm-hmm. until, you know, it's it's critical. Yeah. And, I mean, how her unwillingness to go and how, I mean, I thought what she said about she was obviously in the last stages of dehydration mm-hmm. and her body was really shutting down. And yet, you know, I mean, 
So yeah, those people coming in at the right moment Mm -hmm. to help you carry on. Mm -hmm. All right. So now we're going to move on to our pairings and just talk about books that we thought would match up well with I am, I am, I am, which I will just say is really hard to say over and over. But anyway, <laughs> uh, Ashley, what is your pairing? I wanted to talk about The Joy Luck Club by Amy Tan. And honestly, it has been a while since I read this, but I've read it multiple times and I felt like what really resonated with me is just the way that it is stories that are interwoven together so they stand alone but then also fit together into a larger narrative and I think there's a lot of that in this and it's also a lot about mothers and their children and I think and who they are as individuals and who they are connected to each other and how those things are the same and different so I felt like all of that made a lot of sense to me. And then also, I just remember, again, I've, I'm removed from it somewhat, although some of the stories I've read multiple times because I've done them with students as well. But there are the stories that, I mean, it's just that visceral feeling. Mm-hmm. Like, there's the one with the ocean that I don't want to give any spoilers. But, I mean, it's that feeling of dread and then things happen that are not good. And mm-hmm. I just, it's that same thing of understanding what it would be like to be a mom in that situation and I think that there's a lot of that that's connected I also wanted to mention Lori Moore has short story collections and I just one that really stood out to me so I noticed we didn't talk about this but in Maggie O'Farrell's so in some of these uh I was going to give an example but anyway in some of these she uses second person which I think is extremely unusual in writing but she does it very effectively Mm -hmm. and so when because i think she does some of it in the end with her with her daughter and then also when she's sick i think but anyway the point is she does parts where she switches into second person and very effectively helps that visceral feeling because you are reading Mm -hmm. it as you and imagining exactly what it feels like. And so Lori Moore does that as well. And she has a short story called How. And it is about a partner who is wanting to leave their partner, but they're not sure how to go about doing Mm. it. And it's the whole thing is written in second person. And so I just thought of that because I feel like there's some connection both in tone and also in um, style Mm -hmm. that I think, yeah, makes makes sense so that one is not a I didn't want to do it as my pairing since that is just a single short story but it does stay with me as effective use of second person and something that helps impact the way that we read a story Mm -hmm. Sarah what's your pick (laughs) so this might be a little unusual I had a hard time thinking about a good pick for this because like I said in the beginning I don't often read books like this Mm -hmm. because they're just not as for me as a reader aren't necessarily what I would mm-hmm. go to. So I'm going to actually talk about a book that I talked about in episode way back in episode mm-hmm. 16, which was an unpopular opinion episode of a book that wasn't for me, but that <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to talk about that for this episode because because a lot of people did like it because it did win the Pulitzer mm-hmm. in 2009. And That book is Olive Kitteridge by Elizabeth Strout. I think it pairs nicely with I Am, I Am, I Am because it is told in vignettes. It is about a small town called Crosby, Maine. And the stories are just about life in this small town. But there is a thread that is consistent throughout all of the vignettes, and that is Olive Kitteridge. So to me, that... It's told in the little vignettes. There's a common thread. And so that's why I felt like it paired mm-hmm. nicely with I am, I am, I am. This one is um, definitely fiction. And it is, I didn't like it as much as I liked I am, I am, I am, because I really did like this one. But it is, but if you like that kind of book, I think you will like Olive Kitteridge. Mm-hmm. So that is, that is, it feels weird to have one episode 16 a book that I didn't enjoy and but but if you like that kind of book lots of people liked it and it won the Pulitzer so you're 
You're good to read it. Her sequel just came out, Olive Again. I won't be reading it. <laughs> Not again. Not Fair again. Nine. I won't be reading that. But but so anyway, Elizabeth Strout's Olive Kitteridge. So my pick is Jasmine Ward's Men We Reaped. I just finished this. I actually did a buddy read on Instagram with this and I absolutely loved it. I do think I have some recency bias because I finished it so recently, but it is quite similar. It is also very sad. So in this one, Jasmine Ward is talking about men in her life who in a period of two years died and she is basically for her it's less about just her she's looking at the societal causes for the deaths of these young black men but she also tells it non-sequentially she alternates chapters about each of the men who died with and those move backwards in time with her own story moving forward from her childhood and she's providing all of this context about the town in the south where she grew up and her parents' marriage disintegrating. And so the way that they both circled, like for me, I felt like Maggie O'Farrell is circling toward the encephalitis because for Mm -hmm. her, that is a life-changing moment. And I don't want to give a spoiler about Jasmine Ward, so you do find this out fairly quickly, but there's a, a death that hits her particularly hard, and that's the one that she is working toward, which is at the end of the book. And Ward, like O'Farrell, is just a a brilliant writer, both in the way she puts it all together and at the sentence level. But it also could be read as standalone. So I thought those two just paired really, really well, even though maybe they were getting at different things in examining so many deaths. So that is Jasmine Ward's Men We Reaped, which was really amazing. All right, so we want to think just briefly about how we see this book functioning or maybe not in the classroom. What do you all think about that? Well, I think that it can definitely, like particular essays mm-hmm. would work very mm-hmm. nicely in the classroom. Because When I was teaching English, we did a personal narrative projects and I think you could use, especially like the story about her being the escape artist when she was small. Yes, um, I thought of that one too. Yeah, yeah. You, mm-hmm. and even the one with high school students of jumping off the bridge. I mean, mm-hmm. I think mm-hmm. that you could use it as an example of a well, like an excellent, pers- well-written per- personal narrative and I think it would, it they're short that's the one thing I did like is like all most of them are short they are beautifully written and I think they would really act as a great mentor text for students in middle school like when I taught eighth grade or in high school mm-hmm. Ashley what do you think yes yeah I agree mm-hmm. with that I think that they work really well as standalones I, I also was still thinking back on the second person thing because I felt like I that was yeah. not very concrete but I think that I was looking back she does talk about in the so I'm going to digress for a second sorry yeah, go for it but, <laughs> I, but you could use that in the classroom yeah too. absolutely I think uh-huh. showing shifting perspectives so mm-hmm. she talks about when she's sick, she says, when you're a child, no one tells you that you're going to die. You have to work it out for yourself. Clues may include your mother crying and then pretending not to. And it goes on in that second person. And then the other thing she does, I think that's really interesting. And there is some of that in other places. But she also does a thing, like when she was talking about, when she's telling about her daughter and she's talking about the trying to get pregnant after mm-hmm. the miscarriage, she switches to talking about herself in third person Mm -hmm. so she says you know when the child starts to walk and talk the woman thinks she might like Mm -hmm. another child she becomes pregnant but the baby dies before it even lives she cries a lot she hugs her child more tightly and then it goes on you know and it's that um she says then why the woman wants to know what isn't it happening they can't tell her that they just shrug their shoulders they turn away they wash their hands i mean that use of the different points of view she does that very masterfully and i think it's hard to find that for kids and to show when it is powerful to shift Mm -hmm. from one to another and the impact of that on the reader and so there's a lot of that that could be really nice coupled with what you were saying yes yeah i think I I had some classes that I might have taught the whole thing, whole class, but as I often say, I think this would be better for lit circles because I do think, I can think of some individual students who would have loved it, but I think it might be a tough sell for all students. But Mm -hmm. yeah, I think, like if this is an anthologized at some point, I'll be shocked because I think 
those essays like that you mentioned, Sarah, I think she does such a good job from an adult perspective of portraying yes. what she was thinking and feeling as a child. And like you said, as a teenager, I think some of those moments when she's examining why she did things like jumping off the wall into the ocean when she's a teenager, she's, she's so able to pinpoint that mm-hmm. feeling of restlessness and of wanting to move forward and do something, but not being in a place in her life where she can yet that I think kids would just really connect to more than, you know, this, a lot of it's about a very adult life. Mm -hmm. And not that I didn't have kids, kids who could empathize with that, but you know, it's Mm -hmm. harder to relate. Like the mother parts, you're just going to relate to more when you're our age than when you're high schoolers age. And I think it would be great to teach voice to, to, sentence structure, mm-hmm. all those things that sometimes personal narrative essays that you receive do not have. Yeah. They're just like a kind of a bland the retelling. The implicit yeah. sort of theme that you don't always have to state it bluntly that it's there. But right. And that may not show up quite as well in individual stories as pulling out the mm-hmm. thread. But yeah. Yeah. All right, so we are going to end with our Give Me One. We'll do this quickly, we promise. And so today we are going to talk about favorite superheroes. Who wants to go first? Volunteers? I can go first. Okay. So I have had a lifelong obsession with Wonder Woman. (laughs) I have a Wonder Woman Barbie. I have all kinds of Wonder Woman gear. My family gets me Wonder Woman stuff on occasions and I've always loved her. I think for me, because I mean, I was watching like cartoons and things like that in the eighties and there were just no strong female characters. Mm-hmm. Granted, she did run around in a bathing suit and knee high red yep. stiletto boots, but <laughs> <laughs> so not sure I was the target market, but, <laughs> but I mean, I just think seeing a woman be powerful and be able to run and like do the things that Batman was doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, she was beautiful and I just, I, I loved her all my whole life growing up. So she has always been my favorite superhero. And so then my son, when I had my son, he was obsessed with Batman and he still loves Batman. So we always have this ongoing, who's the better superhero. And it's just been, it's been a great thing for me. And like, you know, to have that with him. And then I've just always loved her. So she's mine. All right, Ashley. I loved the Black Panther movie, and so I am going to go with Black Panther. Okay. I love all the things, uh, so <laughs> I am having a hard time choosing. So I'm going to stand up for one that I think is much maligned. I don't know that he's my absolute favorite, but I get defensive about him, and that's Captain America. So I really like him. I know they're both rolling their eyes. It's fine. He's great. <laughs> I scrunched so. up my nose, to, to be fair. He's not my favorite. Not my favorite I either. I don't know if he's my favorite, because I, I really do watch all of the things superhero he's but not close to my i really <laughs> like him i just love it's both him and superman that are too good for me yeah like I, they're too good like, he I is so earnest so i think he's less good than superman like i like he has a tiny bit of an edge but only yeah only sometimes not anyway. enough edge for me <laughs> <laughs> all right well that wraps up our book club. it's fine our book club episode So again, if you could find us on Apple Podcast and subscribe, rate, and review, we would appreciate it. And we'd love to know your thoughts all this month about I am, I am, I am. Join us in December for, I'm looking up the title just to confirm, Last Christmas in Paris, which is our December book club book. Thanks so much. Bye. Do you have comments or opinions about what you heard today? We'd love to hear them. You can find us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at Underbridge Pod or on the web at underbridgepod.com for a list of ways to support us. We'd like to thank Jared Featherstone, who composed our theme music, Strings of Light, and Katie Amy of Amy Photography, our podcast photographer. Thanks for listening to Unabridged. Unabridged.